interesting thing about my addiction is a lot of people stop partying and stop doing drugs for their kids. Like once they have children, they leave that lifestyle behind. Mine kind of started then, not the partying, but my addiction started after my kids were born, which is unusual. At the peak of her addiction, Laura was taking lethal amounts of Ambien and washing them down with booze. Like many, she was taking Ambien to sleep, but she was also taking it because it moved and shifted her into a place of comfort. And this was a feeling she was unable to access in the life she was living. I didn't have a place of solace in my home anymore because I wasn't happy. So I figured the best thing I can do for my family is to get loaded enough so that I can show up. Because if I don't have these, I can't show up. And then that's the worst thing for my family. Today on the show, self-medicating. We've all done it, myself included. But why? We're talking with Laura Cathcart Robbins, podcaster and author of the new book, Stash, about the weight of our secrets. We'll talk about how consistently numbing them almost cost Laura her life, but also about her recovery and the path to healing, which, spoiler alert, has a lot to do with living in integrity. I'm Kimmy Culp, and this is All the Wiser, a show about hope and possibility on the other side of pain. Laura Cathcart Robbins grew up in Cambridge, Massachusetts. One version of her childhood was very idyllic. Her stepfather and his family had a home in Cape Cod, where she would spend her summers. She was social, had sleepovers, went to day camps, and a great private school. Laura was the only black kid in most of those spaces, which she says wasn't terrible at all, but it was noted. The other version of her childhood is when she is home, living with a stepfather who is very emotionally abusive. I heard this somewhere, and it makes so much sense to me. Like, he wasn't a monster, but there was a monster within him that I seemed to unleash. He was this really nice guy. Like, people really liked him. And I really wanted to like him, but something about me just really rubbed him the wrong way, even, you know, from age five. So I learned to adapt my behavior based on, you know, how high he was because he smoked a lot of weed or how much something else might have set him off. If he was already set off, I did everything I could not to set him off. And that just meant getting really creative at hiding the things that might annoy him or make him angry about me. And so not eliminating them, but hiding them. So I think that's what set me up. That's such an interesting distinguishing factor. And I've never heard that explained. And the second you said it, it that makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. Just in my personal experience of being human in relationships, you know. Yes. And I imagine as a little girl, there's an additional layer of trauma and confusion and contortion around that. I would imagine. Yes. Yeah. I'm pretty separated from it. I yeah. always was. 
So my memory of my childhood, and you probably talked to a lot of people who did this. I went back and interviewed people from my childhood. Everyone remembers me as a really happy kid. That's how I felt most of the time. But there was always this in my home, too. Yeah, which is really important. Right. And and you were the only girl, right? Yeah. I mean, I have brothers, but they're all so much younger than me. I didn't grow up with any of them. So I was an only child, and and I was the only girl. So eventually you would find yourself in Los Angeles, mm-hmm. like many young women before you, you know, big... <laughs> big dreams and a sparkle in your eye. You moved to LA and you pretty quickly build a very glamorous life, you know, falling in love with your husband, who is a high profile director and executive within the entertainment industry, sort of quickly becoming really a power couple. But you paint the picture so vividly of this young black woman in this very white, powerful Hollywood existence. And the way I saw it, the level of just unspoken expectations, identities, pressures, pain, privilege, I mean, there's so much to it. So if you can help set the stage of this chapter in your life, coming mm. to LA and stepping into that world and and really what that looked like. I I moved to LA because I, I love commercials. I love them. I'm so in the minority. No one loves commercials. I always watch the Clio Awards, which are the commercial awards. <laughs> I watch them every year. I don't even know how I knew when they were because I guess it was in the TV guide back then. But I would watch them. I was obsessed with them. People direct commercials here in LA. So I I moved here and I went to work for a commercial director and a a very A-level commercial director, quickly figured out that I was not going to be a commercial director, which is what I had hoped for. Commercial directors were older white men (laughs) exclusively. Um, There were two women who directed commercials. One was Penny Marshall. Anyway, I wasn't going to be a commercial director, but Someone invited me to apply for a job at a PR agency. So I, I've always written. I've always written well. So I did that. I lied to get that job as I did to get every job because I never graduated from high school. I never went to college. So I, I had this story fabricated that I went to FAU, Florida Atlantic University, which figured like a safe lie for me because I didn't know anybody that went there, but I figured I knew enough about the campus because I had lived in Florida for a little while so that if anybody ever asked me any questions, I could answer them confidently. So I, you know, I would lie about that piece of my past in order to, to get any job. Laura got the job at the PR agency and she was a natural. During the day, She was learning the ropes of running a PR company in Hollywood. And at night, she worked the VIP door at one of the most happening clubs in Los Angeles, the Roxbury. It was there that she met her now ex-husband. He was an actor on a show, and they were introduced. I had never dated a white guy, and I, I really wasn't interested in doing so. But he and I ended up having some conversations that changed my mind. So we did become this interracial, 
kind of power couple. I was, I owned the only Black-owned PR firm, um, entertainment PR firm in Los Angeles at the time. So we got a lot of studio and label business because of that. He was, you know, an actor coming off a hit show and he was starting to direct. So there was a lot of eyes on us and it felt, it was in a good way, like it felt good to walk into a room together. And we just got along so well, like we really got each other and it was, it was really fun. Like those early days were really fun. What was your life like at this time? What were the things you guys were doing together and experiencing and the energy around you as a couple in this life you're building together? I mean, it was like a lot of parties because I was still a publicist. That was kind of my job. I had to go to parties probably three or four times a week or events. He had social stuff for his work as well. So we were really social. When we weren't, we went on trips together, like sometimes local, like Santa Barbara, Hawaii, like, you know, we would travel and we didn't have kids. We weren't married. It was, it was very like idyllic, not single, but because we were a couple, but we were still single. Like we could just basically do whatever we wanted. And we did. Yeah. I mean, I, it, obviously it's real life and, but, yeah. but there was, you know, premieres and wonderful restaurants and vacations and mm-hmm. interesting people and a lot happening. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, there was. So eventually you decide to get married Mm -hmm. and build a family together. Talk to me about that, the decision to have kids. Because today we talk about your addiction to Ambien, Mm -hmm. alcohol. Motherhood is really center stage in this aspect of your story. I think this is another place where I started to depart from my authentic self. I did so at several points during my life, but this was a pretty major one for me. I was not ever somebody who liked kids, and I I still don't like kids, honestly. I'm irritated when kids come on a plane (laughs) or they're in a restaurant. (laughs) And that's not to say that I don't like all kids. Like There are certain kids that I really like. But I was not like the babysitter girl. I I didn't dream about having kids. I didn't dream about getting married either, for that matter. But once I was there, kind of at the precipice, and he and I had been dating for a while, you know, about four years, it really seemed that that was the next logical step. He hadn't asked me to marry him yet, but I figured that was probably going to happen. And I just assumed that the next step would be that we would have children. And, you know, I was, I was 31 which was, it's not old, but if I wanted to have more than one child, I needed to, in my mind, that was something I needed to do intentionally and plan or just be somewhat strategic with. So it seemed logical to me that we would want to start trying right away because we wanted to have, that what we had talked about was having like a boy and a girl. And it wasn't something we talked about. We didn't daydream about it very much. Like I saw other couples around us doing it. It just seemed like one of those inevitable things. Like when we have kids, this is what it'll be. Yeah. It's so true of that expectation of the chronology of our lives, right? The second you're dating, are you going to get engaged? The second mm-hmm. you're engaged, when we, when are you getting married? Yep. And then you're married. When are you having kids? Okay. When are you having you have, another one? When yeah. you have one? <laughs> when, when are you having another? Yeah. So uh, you performed. You did yes. all of the above. I did. 
what was early motherhood like for you? You had two boys very close in age. Mm-hmm. So you're a young mother. How are you at this time? What is your life like and what is happening in your inner world? Well, I shuttered my PR company after my first son was born. That just seemed like the right thing to do. You know, the discussion that my ex-husband and I had had was like, somebody's going to raise our kids. We'd rather it be one of us. So I was also kind of like the PR thing was grinding on my nerves because it was so event-filled. And I did have all these studios and labels that had me on retainer, but they had me on retainer to do their quote-unquote urban acts or features or shows, which is black. Urban is code for black. And I was starting to get irritated that I was not given mainstream projects and feeling very limited. So it didn't seem like a great loss to say goodbye to the company at that point because I didn't see them starting to give me those projects like I'd hoped. And the entertainment industry is, from having worked in the industry while I was a mother, is a really... The amount of entertaining and dinners and after hours mm-hmm. and then getting up at the crack of the dawn to, yeah. it is not just a job, it is a lifestyle that is required of you. Absolutely. And like in my pregnancy journal from my first son, I wrote every day, like my countdown to when I was closing the company. Like I was so excited about that. I was like, I'm getting out of this grind. Hooray. And then, yeah, my second son. So one son was born in 98. The other one was born in 99. They were pretty much back to back. We didn't plan that. It just happened. And a lot of people, it's this funny thing about my addiction. I mean, not funny, haha. The interesting thing about my addiction is a lot of people stop partying and stop doing drugs for their kids. Like once they have children, they leave that lifestyle behind. Mine kind of started then. Not the partying, but my addiction started after my kids were born, which is unusual. I know because I'm in recovery rooms all the time. It's an unusual story. It's not most people's story. And, you know, some people resume after their kids are born, but I was, um, I was a fine social drinker in my twenties. There was no issue with me and alcohol. And I had not had experience with prescription pills at that point. So when I was given them, because I was, I was really, I'm sure I was headed for some kind of a breakdown. I I think I had undiagnosed postpartum anxiety and I just like couldn't sleep. I was hypervigilant. Oh, and the other thing that I forgot to mention was me really afraid that I might not love my kids because I didn't love kids in general. And then feeling overwhelmed by how much I loved them. I was, it was like somebody knocked me over with an anvil. Like I was consumed with my kids and in a great way and in a not great way. Like I could not think about them and, and, and everything, like they were the center of my world and they still kind of are. And I didn't want to, I didn't want to hang out with my my then husband. I didn't want to hang out with my friends. Like I didn't want to do anything but hang out with my kids. But the anxiety was challenging. And so the prescription I got when they were little was for Ambien. And that's when I started taking it. And 
you know, as you said, you you went out, you had fun, you drank, but your relationship with alcohol was not causing harm or hurt in your life. Not at that time, yeah. Not at that time, but quickly in early motherhood, things would change, mm-hmm. beginning with the Ambien. Yeah. So how quickly does that scale and what does the usage look like? I'm guessing it's about six years mm-hmm. from beginning to end. First of all, Ambien, I loved it. Oh my God, Kimmy, I loved it. He gave me the first tablet. I mean, he gave me a bottle and I took the first tablet and I had my first like full night sleep in I don't know how long because my kids were like alternating every night. Like one would get up, one was wet, one sleep with me, like one, and they both ended up in our bed, like by the end of the night. And so even when they were settled, I couldn't sleep because my mind, I guess, was still on alert. So I got this really good night's sleep and I woke up and the first thing I thought was, oh, I want to do that again. I knew that was the wrong thought. I knew it was the wrong thought. I knew that my first thought should be like, okay, that was good, but now we have energy for the day or now we can get on with the day. But I was so seduced by that feeling that I'd had, the feeling right before I fell asleep. And then the sleep itself, the sleep was very seductive, intoxicating for me. Well, so elusive as as a parent of young kids. Yes. And as you've teased a bit, and we'll dive into more, everything that is going on underneath emotionally and and internally, it, it makes sense why mm-hmm. it was so attractive. Yeah. Yeah. And you quickly become, to some extent, have the knowledge of a pharmacist. I mean, it's unbelievable, your descriptions in the book, <laughs> that you could literally hold a bottle and know exactly how many pills were in there. Yes. But how does it work with an addiction to Ambien, because I think most people are going to think of it as a sedative, and this is you know something that's going to put you to sleep. Mm-hmm. So, can you explain, you know, as you said, the specific impact it had on you and your body and your system, and what that looked like? Yeah. So, for the first six months, I would take a pill occasionally. I didn't take them all the time. I I knew I loved them, but I would kind of save them for the times where I could enjoy them. After about a year, I was taking one every night with my doctor's blessing. You know, eventually, probably year two, one wasn't putting me to sleep the same way, so I needed to take one and a half, and then it was two. And then, you know, probably by the certainly by the sixth year, but probably by the fourth year, I was take, I was waking up and taking them in the middle of the night because they weren't keeping me asleep for more than a couple of hours. So my tolerance was building at a really alarming rate. You know, I talked about my stepfather not being a monster, but had a monster within. Ambien unleashed that monster within me, which I call my addiction. Like, I don't ever remember contending with anything like this before. But once I crossed that invisible line, somewhere, you know, during that time, that monster was up and calculating and strategizing and like, how can we get more of this? And yeah, it's a sleeping pill. So I couldn't knock myself out during the day because (laughs) 
I had stuff to do. So I had to be really strategic about getting everything done before bedtime, get my kids to bed, get the house in order, get everything straight for the next day. And then I could knock myself out the way that I needed to. There's probably 10 minutes. You know that that feeling when someone gives you propofol and you count back from 10 when you have surgery? Mm-hmm. There are probably 10 minutes where I experienced something like that before I fell asleep. This euphoric feeling would fill me. And it was, I mean, to me, that was everything. Like everything melted away during that time. Everything felt right. Everything felt doable. Like I felt like I could face the next day if I if I had that 10 minutes of experience. And then I was asleep after that. So this euphoric thing that I was chasing, I couldn't have during the day because it would put me into an hour's long sleep. So I would have to wait during the day, which meant I was in withdrawal during the day. So what I would do is chip off like corners of the Ambien, teeny bits, just to put into my system so I'd have enough so that I wouldn't detox, basically. I wouldn't have shaky hands or um, the inability to make eye contact. I wouldn't be jumpy. Like I would look normal, but I was far from normal. But that was how I used it. And that use, it just, again, my tolerance was going up, you know, I had such a high tolerance for it. By the end, I was just taking as many as I could, basically all the time. During this time, Laura is also the parent association president at her boys' school. And it is a very elite, well-funded, independent school. Laura is the first Black PA president there since 1974. And there is not a large Black community in this school. Throughout the entire K-12 school, there were maybe a few other Black moms, and Laura rarely saw them. You know, we could go days on campus dropping off and picking up our kids and not see another Black person. Yeah. Which was, of course, not true for the white families. <laughs> That's yes, all they yes. saw. Yeah. And um, so this was this was a very high honor that had been bestowed upon me. It was because of the way I showed up, which was ironic because I was only showing up to show people that I was okay. I wasn't showing up trying to kind of you know, climb the ladder there at all. I was really showing up to get the heat off of me, get the attention off of me. And it ended up getting me more attention. And so I I would give speeches as the PA president, parent association president. I was asked to join the board. That was like a whole thing. The whole thing being the process of being asked, being vetted, and then actually joining I think it was much more rigorous than it is now. So I I had to present well. I couldn't look shaky or I couldn't look like a junkie, which is what I was. I couldn't look like that. So I would go pour over my day planner, which was my file of facts the night before anything, and see like, okay, how long do I have to be here? How long do I have to be here? Can I cancel this? If I cancel this, then I can just do this, this, and this, and I might be able to wait until I get home to take anything. And that's what it looked like. Like I, that's what I would do all night after my kids went to bed. Before I knocked myself out, I would strategize how I would make it through the next day. And you describe yourself as a double agent. Yes. So you're 
at this very high-performing, affluent, white school in Los Angeles, Mm -hmm. and you are the PTA president. Yeah. You are really deeply involved in the school and your kid's life. Yes. You are playing the role or the part of a wife of a high-profile Hollywood executive, creative. So Mm -hmm. that's entertaining and hosting and traveling. And you've explained that you guys were this, that people were drawn to you as a couple. Yeah. Um, yeah. You're biracial and you're beautiful and you're in this interesting career. And everybody's, to some extent, is sort of intrigued and fawning over your marriage and your life and your Mm -hmm. family. And Mm -hmm. you have described feeling as if looking back, you were living as a double agent. Oh, I, I was. I absolutely was. The kind of the behind the curtain part of my life was getting more and more unmanageable. Well, one of the things that, that still happens, people are reading this book now that I are, have, are my friends from that time period. They're sad and shocked. Like nobody knew what was happening. People didn't even know I went to treatment, which I... I'm not sure. Your how husband that's didn't even know at the time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My husband didn't even know. Like I worked really hard to keep that going. It's it's to think how exhausting to manage all of this. Yes. You must have just been exhausted. All the time. All the time. It's it's amazing to me what I did. And you know, Kimmy, the In my head, I'm thinking this life I have where I'm now unhappy in my marriage, where I have two young children who happen to be boys, and I know there's a lot about that, but for me, the energy they had felt like boy energy. (laughs) Um, And so it it was a lot. It was a lot. We were very close. My boys and I, we played a lot. We, I entertained them a lot. I read to them both at bedtime. One of, one of my kids has dyslexia. So there was like educational therapy. There was occupational therapy. Like there was basketball after school, like every day in addition to those and homework and then sometimes tutoring. Like it was, it was an all day affair, me being a mom. And then I didn't have a place of solace in my home anymore because I wasn't happy. So I figured the best thing I can do for my family is to get loaded enough so that I can show up. Because if I don't have these, I can't show up. And then that's the worst thing for my family. I, I call them like the, the three horsemen, minimization, justification, and rationalization. Like those three things came in and kind of mitigated any thought I might have had about doing something healthy or positive, anything life-affirming. They would justify and rationalize and minimize all of my actions so that it made perfect sense to me. Like, oh yeah, anybody would do this. This is this is just what I have to do now. I have to get loaded so I can show up for my family, period. You know, I thought a lot about the hustle of motherhood mm-hmm. and there's so much out there, right? Mommy juice and, yeah. <laughs> you know, women essentially needing to medicate and self-medicate from the stress and overwhelm or loneliness or expectation, perfectionism. I mean, insert what it is for each person. 
of motherhood. And at some point, it has to be looked at, questioned, disrupted. Mm -hmm. But do you feel like that is is a big part of your story? Absolutely. And, you know, the thing is that I don't know how much of the expectations were societies or what I gleaned from checking around, like doing my own research. Because this is the other thing that I'd done all my life was like looked around to see how everybody else did it. And then I would figure out the best way for me to do it based on that. It seemed to me like all these other moms were enjoying time with their husbands and they loved shopping and they were super social. Like they they saw each other a lot without their kids and their husbands. It seemed like they enjoyed spending time with their husbands and enjoyed spending time with each other and that they enjoyed being moms. But I wasn't happy doing any of it. The only time I was happy was like those times where I described where my kids and I would be playing or I, we'd be watching something or just like hanging out with them. Anything outside of the house was painful. Anything. Speaking of painful, yeah. what are the symptoms or what is happening with you physically, emotionally, the symptoms of withdrawal throughout the day? I'm trying to sort of have somebody walk in your shoes during this time if they can. Like what does withdrawal feel like? Yeah, at that time. The, the ride of it. It's the worst. It's the worst. It's. I think that these 10 months that I write about, the reason I remember them, because Ambien is a drug that robs you of your short-term memory. I shouldn't remember what happened that year because it was the worst. It was I used the most Ambien that year. But I do remember because I think it was so painful that it seared into my memory. You got to imagine like the worst flu that you've ever had, the body aches, the headaches, the fatigue, the sweats, the chills, the lack of mental capacity to process anything besides how uncomfortable you are. And then add in like lazy tongue slurring. The physical pain was was tremendous, but the embarrassment about my state was equal. I was humiliated when I was in withdrawal. I didn't want anybody to know what was happening. I could only say that I caught a cold or caught the flu so many times before people would get suspicious. So I had to walk around like that and not- In this internal world of shame. Yes. And not let anybody know. It was brutal. How are you getting the amount at the height of your using, how much you're using, and how are you getting access to the Ambien? Yeah, that's a good question. I'm not really sure how much I was using. I, I know that for sure I was taking three to go to sleep and then I would wake up and take more. And then I would probably chip away at a couple during the day if I had them. So first I got them from the my original doctor, my, my um, general practitioner. Then I write about doctor shopping, which is when you go to more than one doctor, which is, I believe, far more difficult to do now because... They keep track of that kind of thing. <laughs> but I was like right before they really started looking at it and I could get 
a second prescription from a different prescriber for the same medication. And so that's what I did. I did that as many times as I could. I couldn't do it very many times because I was really afraid of being caught. Because, you know, when you have a, a referring doctor or a general practitioner, and then you have other doctors, they'll check in with them to see what's going on at times. That happens. And I was terrified of that. I didn't want the uh, orthopedist to check in with my general practitioner about what I was being prescribed because then everyone would know and then they would suspend any prescriptions to me, which would be the worst thing that could have possibly happened. It was better to not have anything than to alert anybody. So it was better for me to suffer through unimaginable withdrawal in the hopes of having it later than to letting people know and and not have any at all. Coming up, Laura files for divorce and makes the choice to go to rehab. Stay with us. But before we go, if you are enjoying this podcast, and I hope you are, would you take this moment and leave us a quick review on Apple Podcast? It really goes a long way towards helping other people discover the show. And thanks. All the Wiser is a one-for-one podcast. For every episode you hear, we donate $2,000 to our guest favorite charity. Today's episode benefits Friendly House. Founded in 1951, Friendly House was the first residential treatment program for women recovering from substance and alcohol abuse. They seek to provide an environment in which women can achieve a stabilized recovery from addiction, renew their family relationships, and help reintegrate back into the community and their lives. You can learn more about them on their website, friendlyhousela.org. I want to talk about this period in time in your community. You said, so as you're beautifully illustrating, there are these two sides to your life. This mother who deeply loves her two boys, really involved at the school. I know your husband at the time is working a ton. Mm -hmm. You are exhausted managing these dual identities and addiction. And you said in the book, all the more reason why they can never found out that I, the Goldilocks of black moms, am a drug addict. Mm -hmm. If I were ever exposed, I would take every other black mom down with me into ruin. That, I guess, pressure, internal narrative, external narrative, how can you help me and help the listening audience understanding the role your identity within that community played or participated in the addiction, if that's a a fair question? Yeah, I think that's a really fair question. Just to kind of clarify my mindset during that entire time, I was extremely paranoid about everything all the time. So I don't know how much of this is actually reality. I don't know how I would have been looked at by those same moms 
had I come clean or had had anyone discovered what was really going on with me. But that felt true in your head that if it I go down. absolutely true in my head. Yeah. And what I know from being the only black person in white spaces most of my life, you know, starting from childhood, is that there is a truth to that. And I, I tell it like, you know, if I were the only woman in all male spaces all my life, I would represent women for, for yeah. those people, right? True. So they would say women do this because I did it. They would yeah. think women think this way because I thought that way. The same is true for me being black in white spaces. And it's, it is unconscious bias, yes. But it's also, it could be for any marginalized person, you know, someone with a disability. It would be the same thing. So there is an extra burden placed on that only one, which is why my podcast is called The Only One in the Room. <laughs> There's an extra burden placed on that only one, whoever they are, whoever the other is, to be that representative, whatever that looks like. Because whatever you think of me, you might think of everyone who looks like me. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's real. And that's not particular to addiction. And it wasn't particular to my circumstances at that school where I was, you know, in a leadership position. So I, I felt that it was really important for me to not be exposed as a junkie to these people because the few other Black parents there would then be looked upon differently. And that idea kept me going for a long time. It made it so that it was one of the reasons I couldn't stop. One of the reasons I had to keep going until I got a handle on this addiction. Because I felt like it would be a failure if I waved the white flag of surrender. I couldn't surrender. I needed to keep going so that I could get a handle on it because I had gotten a handle on everything else in my life that had been a challenge. I had figured it out some way. There was always a hack. I didn't know how to hack this, but I didn't want anybody to know that the black woman who was the first PTA president since 1974 that was also black was an addict and couldn't get a handle on her addiction, couldn't handle it, you know? Yeah. I didn't want anybody to know that because of what it might imply for the rest of us. I love you said that you were the quote unquote right kind of black. White folks delighted in your articulateness and easygoing nature. Yep. You were the chosen one. Yes. Non-threatening. Yeah. Yeah. That's, That's the thing is that there is something about me that is not threatening to people that aren't black. I have used that to my advantage and I also... Resented incredibly. Yeah. At the same time. So during this time, you're also really unhappy. And as I was reading your story, felt lonely in your marriage, I would say. Very lonely. Yeah. And this would all really come to a head, which is again how exhausted you must have been. (laughs) But but um Deciding to get a divorce and mm-hmm. also making the choice to go to rehab. Yeah. And, you know, I've heard you say, and you and I both really, you know, have dedicated our craft to storytelling. And mm-hmm. and you've said that people sometimes feel disappointed by your lack of a rock bottom. Yes. 
And which is, which I think is so important because it's so nuanced and real and, and different and human and personal to each person. And while a rock bottom story is easy to follow, many people don't have them. So I kind of love that you don't have, I mean, it would be helpful for a dramatic moment in this podcast, right, but, right. <laughs> but as far as being of service to people listening, I don't think everyone has one. Mm-hmm. Well, no, I think you're right. I think that sometimes if one still has the ability to make a decision, to make a choice, it can just be that, that this is going to stop right now. I'm not going to go any further with this. Sometimes people don't have that choice. And, and that's the way it goes. They have to go until the wheels fall off, until they've lost everything, until they're unhoused, until they're cut off from family, until the money's gone and the job is gone. And I get it. I totally get it. I think of it as a moment of grace that I was able to step through. I was presented with many of them, I believe, moments of grace. And I don't say present it like there was a deity that presented me with moments of grace. I just think there there were in my life different times where I could have stepped through a threshold and said enough, like left the train that I was on and I chose not to. And then this was one of the times where I chose to. So you decide to get help and to go to rehab. You mm-hmm. would go to a 30-day program, The Meadows. Tell me about making that decision and the experience once you get there? So that moment was uh, 4th of July. I had taken our kids by myself to our Malibu house. Malibu's, you know, here in the Los Angeles area. It's a beach community for anyone who doesn't know. Um, We had a home there as well. And I took our kids there to watch the fireworks. We were going to spend the I don't know if it was a weekend, but it was two days we were going to spend there. It was a weekend. It was a weekend. And I couldn't take them. I was in such debilitating withdrawal. I hadn't taken anything before we left our house in the city. And by the time we got there, it wasn't bedtime yet. So I couldn't knock out. So I couldn't take what I needed, but I I couldn't make it. I couldn't take them to see the fireworks. So I asked our neighbors who also had kids their ages if they wouldn't mind taking them because I had a headache, which was true, but it was it was not like a normal headache. And as soon as they left, I ran for my stash of pills and there weren't enough. And I freaked out because I thought I had more. There were only three. Three is the minimum I needed to knock myself out at that time, but I needed to know that I had more for when I woke up. And Three wouldn't keep me asleep all night. I knew that. But I was in so much pain that I could not take them. So I took them. I chugged them down with vodka from the freezer. I took Benadryl. And then I waited for you know them to, to work, and they weren't working. And, and during that time, I kind of made a deal. I, kind of, I didn't make a deal with myself, but I admitted to myself that you had made a deal. You know, like, this is, this is not working. You know, right, right now, you're not. You're not getting loaded anymore when, when you get loaded. Like you're not getting high anymore. You can't, I couldn't be sober and I couldn't be loaded. Neither thing was working. And it finally kicked in and I was able to get like an hour of sleep, but that was it. 
like that much Ambien vodka and Benadryl only put me to sleep for an hour, which tells you how high my tolerance was. And yeah, I woke up and the bed was wet because I had peed in the bed, which is another thing that I was like, if that ever happens, I'm out of here. You know, so I kind of cleaned up and I was hoping to run back to the city to get my stash of pills before the kids got home and they got home before I could run home. And I just had to stay there and be their mom. And it was the most defeating moment, uh, one of the most defeating moments of my life. And I decided then that I was, I was going to go get help. And you would go to the Meadows yep. for 30 days. Yes. You went 11 days without sleeping in a medical detox. Is that right? That is correct. Wow. It was incredibly difficult. It was so, it was the worst. Uh, what happens? I mean, how are you supported through that? Pri you just, you just do it, I imagine. But what was that like? Yeah. So, you know, they're medical professionals. They ask you like what you're taking. I told them I was taking more than I was taking because I wanted them to give me more drugs to detox me. <laughs> so they worked out a regimen that would keep me from dying basically while I detoxed because they couldn't just pull me off because I could die. So they have to titrate you down. So that's what they did. They worked out a whole program where we're going to do this, this, and this, you know, morning, noon, and night for this many days. And then it's morning and night for this many days. And then it's just night and then you're off. And so that's what we did. And, you know, they're, they're all over you. Like you're never by yourself. You're always in the company of either the other patients or one of the staff members. And when you're critical, like I was, they're not letting you out of their sight for very long. Yeah. So I was very carefully watched, but I was miserable. How old were the boys at this time? They were about to turn 10 and about to turn, so eight, eight and nine. That separation had to be devastating for you. Or was it? Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't remember leaving there, leaving home for there. I don't remember saying goodbye to them or anything, but I'm sure it was devastating. That's probably why I can't remember it. But uh, just being there was like being there without my skin. I, I couldn't, it felt so unfair that I had to leave them in order to get well for them. They didn't want me to go. I didn't want to leave them. It was incredibly painful. Yeah. You leave rehab and are coming back home and are now facing the reality of a divorce. Mm -hmm. So navigating that separation and divorce, becoming a single mother, yeah. being in recovery, your first year of recovery. Mm. And, you know, as you even said, looking people in the eyes after. Yeah. And I do feel, you know, we've talked obviously a lot about motherhood, but there is sadly, you know, a lot of shame and stigma, as we know, with addiction. Mm -hmm. But there is like a special form of shame that is saved for mothers. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and to be so visible as this super mom and this glamorous wife and to be dealing with everything you're dealing with and then to just walk in the school. I mean, so I'm so curious about this chapter 
and the reality of the re-entry into your day-to-day life? Yes. So the unfortunate thing is that when the drugs and alcohol left my body, the paranoia did not. I feel like it heightened, actually. So I was just terrified that I had been discussed by everybody and everybody knew what was going on with me when I got back. Fortunate timing for me is that it was summer, so school hadn't started. But I still didn't know what anyone knew, and I didn't know what our neighbors knew. I didn't know what the other, like my kids' friends' parents knew. I didn't know what my in-laws knew. Like I didn't know what anyone knew, and I did not want them to know the truth. I knew that for sure. I didn't want anybody to know the truth. I didn't come back proud to be sober at all. I came back deeply ashamed of it, deeply ashamed of being an addict, but oddly even more ashamed of being in recovery. And I tried to hide it. So it wasn't really public knowledge. No, no, it was not public knowledge at all. Like no one knew. No one, no one knew. I mean, people very close to me knew that we were getting a divorce and they had known, you know, from when I asked for one, very close to me, probably, you know, three or four people. But other than that, no one knew that we were getting a divorce. No one knew that I was struggling with addiction. No one knew that I had gone to treatment, which I'm still stunned by because it's juicy gossip. Yeah. You know? And you guys were an it couple. Yeah. And we were an it couple. So to have that not be discussed is, is pretty amazing. Yeah. But yeah, so I was like going back was, it was, it was hell. Like I had a really hard time coming back. Again, the only place I kind of felt safe was with my kids. Mm-hmm. But even that was strained at first because I just didn't know how to do anything anymore. Like I felt like I didn't know how to be their mom anymore. And now I had this life that had to include at my lawyer's insistence drug testing. Twice a week I had to start going to therapy, which I had always poo-pooed. I had to go to recovery meetings and still be PA president, and still be on the board, and still keep up this life. I still had, you know, tennis with the ladies on Tuesdays or whatever it was. And I still worked out with a personal trainer, you know, like four days a week. Like, so I I still kept up the outsides. But I felt like any minute, the emperor with no clothes, like someone was going to see it and point it out, and then everybody would see well, yeah, as you say, you're you're always hiding in plain sight. Yeah, yeah, I am. So one thing that was absent in your recovery was stories of Black women in recovery yes. from addiction yes. that you could find yourself in, that you could relate to, that you could be inspired by. And as somebody who's a writer and finds themselves in stories, there's a low, again, a loneliness to that. I keep coming back to this word lonely. Mm -hmm. So talk to me about that. And that was another piece of your recovery is, is realizing that part of your recovery would be getting the numbers of other black women in recovery. Yeah. When I could find them. (laughs) But yes, and thank you so much for that question, Kimmy. That's, it's so important to me. 
And the other piece of this is, is that, you know, I mentioned I didn't graduate from high school. I didn't go to college. Everything that I know that I don't get from my real life experience, I get from books. I get from reading books. So when I was wondering like how to get sober or how to get a handle on my addiction, I went to books. But I could not find anything about addiction or divorce, which was the other thing that I was looking up, written by women who look like me. You know, I that was stunning to me. I, I made do. There were books that I found that were great. They didn't reflect back to me my experience exactly, but but they were they had to be enough because that's all there was. And so that's what I did is I read those books and I went into those, you know, white recovery meetings where I still go. And I'm still, you know, maybe one of two black people in the meetings that I go to. Um, Sometimes there's three of us, but usually there's two. You know, it's, I have to take what I need from those things. I have to take take what I need and not dwell on what I'm not getting out of them because it's life or death for me. This is not, this is not something for me that I can play around with my sobriety. So when I wrote Stash, when I wrote the proposal for it, I needed comps, comparisons, comparative titles, so that the the publishers know they can sell it. Like who's going to buy this book, right? Who's going to buy this book written by a black woman about addiction? So they look naturally to see how other books about addiction written by black women have sold. Well, there were there were no comparisons <laughs> for me. We you are the comp. <laughs> yeah, we couldn't find two books for them to compare to. Wow. So that was stunning, right? So we took a different tactic and we just made it about addiction. And yeah, it's written by a black woman, but this is really an addiction story. So that's how we sold it. And and then we could find lots of comps. But when I wrote it, I was like, you know, this is going to be on those quitlet shelves which I didn't know that term then. So it's Q-U-I-T-L-I-T, quit lit. That's what it's called, you know, the whole genre of literature that is geared toward people who want to look at their relationship with substances, with alcohol and drugs. And all of the the authors in that genre right now are white women. Uh, that's not true. There, is, there are some white men as well. Uh, Matthew Perry is one of them. Dax Shepard is one of them. Rich Roll is one of them. If he has a book, I'm sure he has a book. So those would also be quitlit authors. But but there are no quitlit authors of color that are on the bestseller lists and at any place, not top 10, not top 50, et cetera, which means you won't find their books on bookshelves, even when they're written. So the call to action for anybody who thinks this is outrageous, and I hope you do, is that white women need to buy books like mine. Because if we don't, it's all business, right? If we don't yeah. buy these books, they won't be on these shelves. And then like the next black woman like me that kind of comes slinking into a bookstore and tries to discreetly find a title that will help her with what she's dealing with, she'll have more than one book to choose from. Maybe she'll have three or four that reflect back to her, her own experience and an image. And that would be representation and not tokenization, which is what we might have now if my book does well. Yeah. You know, it'll be the token book. It'll be the only one on the quitlet shelf. But if that does well, more will do well. And then we can go from there. Well, I I know there are 
many women who will listen are listening now and will buy your beautiful book. Thank you. So you had talked, you know, initially you you come back, you're figuring out your divorce. Yeah. Your recovery is a secret. Yes. At what point do you decide to share and be open about that? So in the 12-step recovery program that I'm in, there's a, a step that is nine where you make amends to people that you've wronged. So that was the first foray into letting people know what was going on and being honest with them. So these were mainly people that were I was close to that I needed to make these types of amends to. And, and the amends were basically, I completely shut you out of my life without any thought to how that might feel for you. For me, it seemed like survival, but that's not an excuse. And... I don't know what that did to you. I don't know how it impacted our friendship or our relationship. And um, I'd like to do better now. So during that process, I told people in broad strokes what was happening. I didn't tell anybody details, but I told people in broad strokes what had happened and what it was like and then what happened and then where I was at that time. And they were all very, after they got over being shocked, they were really compassionate, all of them. So I came out to them, if that's a term I can use for this, in, at different times throughout the year. And then by the end of the year, everybody knew. By the end of that first year. Yeah. Yeah. You know, this podcast is about hope and possibility on the other end of pain. Mm-hmm. Your story certainly qualifies. <laughs> It does. It does. I was very excited when I started listening to your podcast to see what you talk about. And I'm like, oh, this is this is me. Yeah. yeah. So there is so much hope and and Laura, what I I I think many people, perhaps, you know, maybe even more so women and, and maybe even moms, this idea of stepping into the truth of who you are and sort of mm-hmm. living fully seen in integrity. You lived on the outside a life that was really desirable to other people, right? That, that looked really freaking good. <laughs> I think what I'm saying is that many women would relate to this idea of just the performativeness of life and motherhood and putting on a face that isn't always true to what's really going on, to your values, to your likes. So explain that to me, because you were hiding. So what does it mean to not hide? What does it mean to be fully seen? Well, I think if I had truly known what would happen if I were my authentic self from the beginning, you know, not, not in my home growing up with my stepfather, because I knew what would happen then. And there would have been consequences that were unpleasant. But after that, if I had known that I could be myself, that I could be honest about who I was and still be loved and still be liked and still be funny and still be, you know, people want to be around me, still be invited to stuff, still have people listen to what I say and 
be able to give guidance to people or, or take guidance or whatever. Like I, I think I would have made different choices if I had known that. I don't know how I could have truly known that unless I lived this way. And I don't think I could have lived this way unless I'd gone through everything I went through. But what's happened to me on the other side of this, on the other side of that first year, so like starting, you know, in, in August of 2009, in 12-step in literature, there's a promise of a new freedom and a new happiness. That always sounded like bullshit to me and rhetoric. And, you know, freedom is a rich and dear word, especially for black people, because we are not free, you know, in so many different ways, even still. But what I experience on a daily by, you know, those little, like the seedlings of being as honest as I could to being honest to living honestly. Like I, I don't have any red in my ledger anywhere, Kimmy. I don't have any unfinished business with anybody. There is no one that I would see in the grocery store that I would turn around and avoid if they didn't see me at the same time. And I used to have that. I'd be like, oh shit, I can't, I gotta go the other way. I can't talk to that person. I don't have anybody in my life like that. I don't have anybody that I have issues with. Nobody. I'm clean in all my relationships. I'm current with my parents who are vibrant and alive and amazing. I'm current with my children, with my partner, with my friends. Those are really important relationships and I'm current with all of them. And I'm good. I'm a really good friend. I'm a good daughter. I'm a good partner. I'm a great mom. So the rewards of that, the benefit of that is that, you know, I don't go to bed with ruminating thoughts. I don't wake up with them. I go to bed really content. I wake up happy. I mean, probably not every morning, but 99.9% of them. I'm excited to start the day. I'm so grateful that I get a day, that I'm not in jail, that I didn't kill anybody, that my, my sons didn't have to bury me. I'm so grateful I get to sleep in my bed. Oh my God, I love my bed. I love my sheets. I love my pillow. Like I'm, I can't wait to get in it at night and just cozy down into it. I love reading. I get to read in bed. Like all these things that felt out of reach to me before I get to do now. I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful. And I'm, I really, I find joy every day in something that I do, not intentionally. It just is. It's, it's like squeal out loud joy. Like that's where my life is right now. So I wouldn't change anything, not even the path that took me here. Cause like I said, I don't think I could have this without it. Yeah. I love all of that so, so much. Have you ever thought about had you not made the choice to? go to rehab and address your addiction, where do you think you would be in your life? Oh, I don't know that I'd be alive. Honestly, I I was taking lethal amounts of sleeping pills every night and washing them down with booze. I, I don't know that I would be alive. What do you hope people take away from your story when you talk about this transformational journey and the path that's led you to where you are in your work today. Um, that you're as sick as your secrets. The fewer secrets you have, the, the freer you are, the healthier you are. You can see how sick I got with mine. 
I mean, I got as about as sick as you can get carrying all those secrets. And the release of them was the choice to release them was what allowed me to actually start living instead of just existing. Laura, thank you for sharing your story and all of your beautiful wisdom. Thank you, Kimmy. Thank you for having me on. You can find all things Laura at theonlyonepod.com and on Instagram at Laura Cathcart Robbins. And don't forget to pick up her book, Stash, wherever books are sold. All the Wiser is produced by Erica Gerard of Podkit Productions. That's me. The associate producer is me, Tara Daigle. I'm John LaSala, the editor, composer, and sound designer. And me, I'm Kimmy Culp. And until next time, take care of yourself and one another. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.